What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Midwestern Marks podcast. It's been a while since we've done one of these. Um, my name's Eddie Smith here with my co-host, Carlos Garrido. How's it going, Carlos? I'm doing good, comrade. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. Um, we haven't done one of these in a while, but uh, we were banned on TikTok recently, um, which is is a blessing and a curse. Um TikToks, <laughs> they were draining on me to do for sure. Um, and just being on that app all the time, it's kind of toxic. So uh, now I'm kind of excited to, to do more of these, to, to talk about um, news and theory um, and the stuff that we love to talk about the most and that we think is the most important. So we're going to kick things off by talking about um, Colombia. Uh, I'm not super up to date on the situation right now but um <clears throat> carlos has been following it fairly closely so um what's going on in colombia carlos well first off i i've been following very uh, cursory it's just been a, an over-the-top look but um it's important to note that colombia has traditionally been a stronghold of u.s imperialism uh with for instance with the attacks that uh, U.S. imperialism had on Cuba during the beginning of the pandemic, where they were uh, withholding uh, the shipments that came from the Jack Ma Foundation in, in China, the place where they withheld it were like Colombian airports. So Co Colombia has always been a stronghold for U.S. imperialism in the region. And uh, nonetheless, they've always had like a fairly strong uh, guerrilla movement known as the M-19 I don't know the history too well, but some years ago, they dissolve as a sort of guerrilla and start becoming political. And what you have now in Colombia is a candidate, Gustavo Petro, who was one of the members of the M-19 uh, group. And he just won something known as the Historic Pact, which is, from what I've seen, basically a primary for the left-wing forces. He got more than 80% of the vote, and he's put himself in a really strong position to potentially become president of uh, Colombia. So I, I think that this would be a crushing and uh, more so dem demoralizing defeat for American imperialism, which has had such a secure station uh, in the region uh, through Colombia. And it just, it signals, I think, both the, the advancement of this red slash pink wave that's taking place in Latin America. We saw uh, uh, the inauguration of of Gabriel Boric in Chile a couple of days ago, or yesterday, I think, um, and he saluted uh, Salvador Allende. And I know that, you know, the viewers are, are probably know the fact that he, he expresses some views that are um, not too radical and, and his perspective on, on places like Cuba and, and the Venezuelan uh, Bolivarian Revolution are not the same ones we share, but nonetheless is a progressive force in the region. And, and I think that overall it's a positive. So we have a similar dynamic now with Petro in, in Colombia. Uh, we also had in Honduras, the victory of Xiomara Castro. So the, the region is having a pink slash red wave. And uh, I think overall that signals general trend that seems to be taking place in geopolitics, which is the move away from unipolarity, uh, from the US being the sole power in the world that just dictates its will on everyone else towards multipolarity. And whether it's the East, the Arab world, uh, or the, the global South, 
what we find is that uh, the U.S. is uh, is being uh, challenged and often defeated more than before, at least. Definitely. I mean, if there was, you know, a left wing, even social democratic candidate to be elected in Colombia after, you know, we had a democratic socialist elected in Honduras, like two countries in Central and Latin America who are are known for being bastions of the right wing, the extreme right um, propped up and backed by by the U.S. State Department, and the arms of imperialism. So um, that would be incredible. Um, but as you said, it, it, it's a pink wave. So I'm still, I guess, is skeptical because of, you know, those things that you said, because um, some of these um, elected candidates like uh, Gabriel Boric have been um, hesitant to denounce the countries who um, the U.S. has has taken imperialistic actions against, like uh, Cuba, um, countries who we believe are trying to build socialism. But uh... whoops, I made a mistake there. I meant to say that we've still been critical of these elected candidates who do denounce countries like Cuba, who are hesitant to support these countries. Um, yeah, I messed up there. We filmed this podcast after I got done with wrestling practice and I was really tired. I'm sorry. Uh, nevertheless, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. Um, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely another blow to the U S which is happening more and more and more lately. And, um, we'll see what kind of consequences, uh, this loss or this, this end of U S hegemony is going to have here, uh, at home too, uh, here soon. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that we have to understand as Marx is that the struggle for socialism is going to take different forms in different places because it's just different conditions, not just in the direct context we find each country in, but historical conditions which have shaped those contexts. Uh, and in Colombia, if you're walking around, you know, praising Cuba and Venezuela, it makes it a little harder to get elected. Uh, so I don't doubt that some of the rhetoric that um, that we've seen that has been slightly hostile to these countries is is more so tactical in order to get elected. I don't think that at heart someone who was a part of the M19 uh, really holds such, you know, uh, bourgeois liberal democratic views about Cuba and and Venezuela, especially since M19 had, you know, certain connections to Cuba. A lot of their militants trained in Cuba, which was a general trend in Latin America for these uh, focal groups. Focal, focalism is the uh, it's, it's like uh, the guerrilla strategy that uh, Che Guevara developed. So I find it very difficult to have uh, someone who was a part of those groups now have those views. So I'm inclined uh, to think that it's just uh, him being smart, knowing the context that he's in and, and doing and adjusting his discourse to the place he's in so that he can win. At the end of the day, what matters is uh, them coming to power and becoming an anti-imperialist force. Uh, and that would force them necessarily to ally with countries like Cuba, Venezuela, Bolivia, and the rest of the pink slash red wave that, that exists in Latin America. And, and we can judge them by their actions, right? Like we, <clears throat> we can, um, we hear their words and we can, you know, guess uh, what they're going to do. Um, but we can judge them by, you know, do they do they end up aiding the U.S. Uh, in imperialism like social democratic countries do in in Europe? Um, or will they, you know, like you said, trade and ally with Bolivia and Venezuela and Cuba and, 
you know, fight or uh, argue against the embargo or vote against the embargo at the UN. If it comes to that, um, we can, we can judge each country by their actions. Um, yeah. If we judge them by the words, the U S would be the beacon of liberty and freedom, and <laughs> democracy and shit. Um, they are. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, bourgeois freedom, liberty, and democracy. Right. Nice. Um, so I, we wanted to, uh, to also switch to the topic of censorship, which, uh, I'm, as I'm sure the audience knows, there has been widespread censorship in the U.S. Uh, RT America was basically banned. A lot of uh, great shows that were from left-wing uh, and socialist creators, such as Abby Martin, Chris Hedges, uh, Lee Camp, they've all just been canceled uh, because of this censorship. Uh, so uh, we've also felt this uh in the flesh, basically, and, and with our project, uh, with the TikTok, which was the, the biggest avenue which we had, at close to 400,000 followers, and you were running that, Eddie. So how, how do you um, see the context of censorship, both as it relates to the censorship of the TikTok and as it relates to the general trend that is taking place now as the Cold War is heating up? Um, yeah. I mean, we we always kind of predicted this, which is why we have tried so hard to build up our other socials. Um, I mean, our other social media accounts and then our YouTube here. Um, so we can try and maintain, you know, our audience or retain our audience here uh, once this happened, because um, we were getting to a large following, you know, and it's like the U.S. ruling class um is not going to allow this for long, you know, is, is what I was thinking to myself, I guess, and what Carlos and I were talking about. Um, and we were right. Uh, and we thought it was going to be during the SOS Cuba protest, you know, which, you know, it was proven now that the U.S. State Department was collaborating with a company in Miami to put out social media bot accounts um, to flood comment sections with SOS Cuba uh, propaganda, uh, regime change propaganda. Um, and then the account got banned, but we eventually got it back. There was a big call for us to get it back. Um, and then recently, uh, with the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation going on, um, the account has been taken down again. And and as Carlos said, there's been a wave of censorship and, and outlets much, much bigger than ours, like RT, have been censored. And I don't know. There's just so much hypocrisy. It's it's so interesting. Uh, people who like are MSNBC commentators or people who go on CNN all the time are talking about how Abby Martin can't be trusted or Max Blumenthal or whoever else. Not to say these people always get it right or we always agree with them, but whoever else can't be trusted because they go on RT. It's like, well, these people get blackballed from, you know, the American corporate media because they're critical of the U.S. State Department. So it's like, well, what then what media is more biased? Is it RT, which allows these people to have a voice, these people who sometimes are critical of Russia? Um, or is it uh, MSNBC and CNN who blackball anybody who's critical of the American empire uh, because these private news institutions are owned by oligarchs, of course. Um, so it's interesting to see. Uh, and now you have it on social media. Um, you have the creation of the metaverse, which is basically just, you know, the monopolization of social media, which is just going to make censorship easier. And, and we're going to have to find alternative methods to spread theory and, and propaganda and stuff. But uh, 
it is it is definitely concerning. Um, and it's funny because, uh, you know, the the main like uh, played out argument against socialism is like George Orwell's 1984. You know, you're going to live in this authoritarian society where Big Brother is watching you. And it's like, well, in capitalism, Mark Zuckerberg is watching you. He is Big Brother. You know, we're, we're living in, in 1984 almost. So uh, and it, it's interesting, even, you know, even conservative people I know are mad about it because they're like, you know, freedom of speech should apply to these news corporations or, you know, to social media corporations because, um, you know, they're so big. It's basically like the public square now, you know, that they, they should be regulated as public utilities is the argument. And I think that's it's uh, a good argument. That's what we should do uh, under socialism. Well, one of the what, what people don't often know, one of the first things that Marx was writing about as a journalist was against censorship. Oh, sorry, was against censorship because he was getting censored left and right in the uh, newspapers he was writing for. Hmm. Um, I, one of the points that you make is, is really good. The fact that there was a plurality of opinions in, in RT. Um, sure, it's, it's funded by the Russian state. But when you look at the content of RT, you have so many different uh people with so many different backgrounds talking and even with the the right now with the the conflict in in ukraine the intervention um uh, the russian intervention in, in ukraine uh you had uh, people like the i'm forgetting his name but the guy that runs the show going underground he was critical of of russia's intervention he was calling it an invasion uh so was abby martin she was someone that was uh critical of Russia's action, although she, of course, contextualizes it better than, you know, anyone uh, in, in mainstream U.S. media does. She was critical. So you had people with, even in such a uh, such a, a large issue, you had a plurality of views. And what you have in mainstream U.S. media is not that. You have complete uniformity when it comes to the things that, that truly count, right? I remember um, one of the, the, the first things that you wrote that I read was your thesis when, when you graduated from, from undergrad and you did a study of uh, what mainstream media was uh, putting out there with relationship to Venezuela. And it was just complete uniformity. And you showed very well how there was no opposition to the narrative on Venezuela. And that's the case with everything, right? That's the case with everything. And when opposition does show up, uh, People get kicked off of their networks, right? Um, so it's 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 funny because they just kidnap words. <laughs> they kidnap words like liberty. They kidnap words like freedom of speech, um, and they just kidnap truth. They it's whatever they say. It's it's was truth, and it's it's very scary at a time when social media plays and just media in general plays such a big role in people's lives to just completely annihilate any uh, dissenting content. I mean, the pages that haven't been, that are not that big, like this Mango Press uh, page I've seen float around in, in Twitter, they got banned for just sharing stuff about Ukraine and, and some of the atrocities of the Azov Battalion and uh, some of the things that the, the uh, military people are doing over there with the people that are trying to leave the country. Um, so it's, it's, it's very scary and I had, um, one of uh, the comrades who runs another project, he tagged me and a, and a group of other people on Facebook on a post about the potential for 
you know, general progressive socialist and communist forces coming together and creating some sort of uh, social media platform that, that, you know, won't get censored as easily, but it's not, it's not usually that easy. I, I wish it was, but um, you have countries. This is something we touched on in a podcast a few months ago with Ramiro. Like, do did, did Nicaragua have like their own social media apparatuses so that uh, they can block off some of the propaganda or just allow the, 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 the freedom of an alternative narrative to, to emerge? And it's difficult for a country to do it. I can only imagine how difficult it would be for a group of people within the country that censors the most to do it. So it's a really scary time. And I, I think that one of the things that we've always focused on in our project is the fact that nothing can replace organizing in your workplace. Nothing can replace organizing in your community. And at the end of the day, that's something that they can't really censor as easily. This uh, online interaction is fantastic, but it's always at the whim of capital. And whenever it becomes too dangerous for capital, the rug is gonna get pulled out from under. Um, so we have to be conscious of that and always try to plant our roots uh, in our communities and in our workplaces. Absolutely. That's where our focus should be. Our focus should never be online. Because like you said, <laughs> this is, is a nice tool for education and reaching people, but it's just that, you know, uh, it, it cannot replace workplace um, and community organizing. And that's interesting. You were talking about how countries like Nicaragua have set up their own um, social media sites so people can can get around like um, American hegemony and people always say like the great firewall in China is like the most authoritarian thing ever but it's mostly to protect Chinese citizens from not getting their data stolen and and you know not allowing these giant western corporations even though some of them are allowed in China on some level to like steal the the data of Chinese citizens and uh, censor them and do all these these things that they do um, in the West, um, which is interesting. And, and the U.S. actually did a similar thing with TikTok. You know, when we were sort of blowing up, um, uh, there was this big controversy where Donald Trump was saying he was going to ban it. And, you know, eventually uh, laws or rules were put in place that said uh, TikTok needed to be managed by by American um, corporations or whatever. And that's when we stopped like making money substantially and then eventually led to getting permanently banned. Um, so it's interesting. You sort of have this battle also between um, the two uh, poles, the imperialistic um, US versus uh, China also battling um, in, in like, uh, I don't even know what you would call it, technologically with uh, uh trying to it's protect data security what it, it's a new field of struggle um and i i know that uh i mean on one end we do have to realize that nothing replaces uh live interactions with people right nothing can replace workshop organizing community organizing but on the other end it's a very serious field of interaction uh where public discourse takes place and that's why I think it, it is fair to be on there and to be concerned about what are some of the discourses. I know that there's a lot of like shit posting and bots and stuff like that, uh, but it is a public sphere of influence and a lot of people change their views on things and act and, and do different things. I mean, there's a video circulating now of uh, an American who went out to, to Ukraine 
Um, you know, those are actions that are influenced in part by the things that people see on social media, right? So it is a, a sphere that has tremendous influence. So regardless of the fact that you can't replace it for in-person organizing, it's still a field of battle, right? It's it's almost like a, we're having a discussion, I, I think, in a, in, an episode, in a podcast episode we did a year or two ago. Uh, and, and we're talking about religion and, uh, and how in countries where religion is widespread, the struggle for socialism in the level of the superstructure and the cultural level means the struggle of a religion that's progressive and in the interest of the working class against the established religion, right? So uh, the same thing, I, the same problem, I, I think it's here with, uh, with social media and technology that it has through, uh, through its material development made itself into a field of struggle. And uh, we shouldn't undermine it and we shouldn't overestimate it either, right? We need to have a concrete understanding of it and realize that it's not enough, but it's also not going to be enough if we don't use it, right? For sure. It's a good way of putting it. And I think right, it's so China, the one that has the, the, the Twitter. Nicaragua hasn't been able to like develop the, the alternative yet, um, if I recall correctly. And it's, it's difficult. Right. It's it's difficult to build up these great systems that allow people to interact in the ways that they do. Um, it's going to have to, I think, get done because we're seeing it like there was this one page, uh, this military page, I think, that was posting both sides of, of the conflict now in in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, and they just got banned. It's just any information that goes against the official narrative just gets banned. And uh, that's scary, but we should also realize that a normative critique, although it might be effective, um, needs to be premised by an understanding that this is how capital works. We should expect this like this. So the other thing we wanted to talk about, the way that uh, we've always kind of broken down these, these podcasts has been where the, the first half is usually something uh, with relation to contemporary politics and the second half is usually theoretical. But as we know, things are never as clearly uh, cut uh, as, as we might think that they are, that things always bleed into one another. The, uh, the political discourse is always imbued with a certain uh, theoretical uh, uh, content and the theoretical content is always imbued with certain political implications. And I think that uh, the topic that I wanna to touch on today uh, lightly is the Soviet manuals. Um, so during the Soviet Union, there was these manuals that were produced by the main institutes uh, that were basically Marxism textbooks. They're usually divided into three major sections, political economy, uh, philosophy, and socialism, uh, which is the same sort of breakdown that uh, Engels' anti-During has. It starts with philosophy, and it goes into political economy, and then socialism. And these manuals, they've been largely criticized by... Uh, Marxism in the West as being sometimes reductive, sometimes mechanistic, sometimes simplistic. Um, and they've, they've gotten their content in these manuals and, uh, or in other similar uh, texts that try to do similar things like Stalin's dialectical and historical materialism that try to provide the basic ideas of Marxism to a mass audience in a way that's understandable and that refrains from some of the academic jargon. Um, they take these texts and then they homogenize it. So they say that, look, 
there's this thing called Soviet Marxism. And everything that you find in Soviet Marxism or in the Marxism that comes out of the Soviet Union is like this. This is simplistic, this is mechanistic. And in part, this, these theoretical failures show failures uh, in politics and economics and blah, 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 blah. And so Western Marxism has really built up an industry. Uh, again, the word Western Marxism lightly, I'm using it lightly, but uh, the Marxism that has taken root in the West as a reaction to the Marxism that existed in the Soviet Union and, and the Marxism that is that was prevalent in communist parties, they have really developed themselves on the basis of criticizing Soviet Marxism or official Marxism or uh, official Marxism-Leninism and just taking these textbooks and, and trying to tear them apart. There was a time when they actually were engaging with the textbooks. Now it's like so formal that there's no new book that you'll buy on Marxism that won't repeat some of the dogmas that the old Western Marxists would say about uh, Soviet Marxism as if it was just like common knowledge, right? And philosophy, I think good philosophy, and this is something that, that Gramsci mentioned hegemony, this is something that Gramsci agrees with. The first thing is know thyself. And to do that, you need to know what are those things that you don't know that you know, right? What are the things you don't know that you know? Because those are your assumptions. Those are the assumptions you're taking into the work that you're doing. And I mean, I've been engaging with a lot of recent literature of the last two two years, basically, of Marxism, the recent stuff that's been printed, and almost all of them have the same redundant critiques of Soviet Marxism being this, being that, simplistic. They take dialectics and they make it into uh, a metaphysical view and blah, 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 blah. What you never find is a citation to any of the manuals. You never find that. You find here and there citations to Stalin's dialectical and historical materialism, but it's conceived as that's how everyone thought. It doesn't matter that the Soviet Union was one of the largest countries, um, or, or at least Soviet Russia was one of the largest countries uh, on the planet. Every single human individual that considered themselves a Marxist thought like that. That's that's their idea. It's, it's, it's pretty absurd. But what you find and what I have found in my research of so-called Soviet Marxism is that there has been a plurality of opinions and even if you read like Stalin's text, a lot of his texts are polemics against other people. And I'm sorry, but in order to have a polemic against someone else, you need someone else with a different fucking opinion. I'm sorry, it's just basic common sense. If you have just one opinion, you can't have a polemic because you need more than one in order to discuss. So yes, there was limitations and limitations were unhelpful and they prevented progress in certain areas, but there was a plurality of views that are worth exploring. There wasn't just one form of Marxism. If you look at even the manuals that these people criticize, the manuals coming out around the time of Stalin's uh, 1938 dialectical and historical materialism, they analyze ethics completely different than Stalin. Stalin leaves out the negation of the negation. And that's a big mistake, in my opinion. That's a big mistake and it had political implications, right? The negation of the negation is the principle that Marx appeals to at the end of Capital when he's talking about the expropriators being expropriated the nail of private property sounds, boom, the negation of the negation, right? Um, so it, it, it was used as the dialectical law which interpreted revolutions. So Stalin removed it. That's wrong. But the manuals from the time didn't remove it. 
they contained the negation of the negation and they had a bunch of other categories that they interpreted dialectically. And what I have found both reading Stan's work and reading the manuals and reading the other tendencies that were a little bit rich, richer from the Soviet Union is not just that there was a plurality of thought, but that it's really foolish to take uh, your object of critique to be the Soviet manuals. Because these are textbooks. These are textbooks that are meant to inform regular cadre uh, party members and just regular students, right? I have family members who have educated themselves in Cuba, who were not Marxist specialists, who were not specialists in Hegel, but who had to read the manuals in order to graduate. It's like the, the basic general uh, credits that you have to get in the US to graduate, where you have to take a bunch of dumb stuff. They had to do that with the, the manuals. And today I'm able to talk to these relatives about Hegel, dialectics, and some of the, the more dense topics of uh, the theoretical aspect of Marxism with no problem because they studied the manuals, because they set a really good foundation for these people. And yes, in some places it is simplistic. Yes, in some places it is mechanistic, but the process of learning is a dialectical process. You have to learn things at a basic, almost not incorrect, but at a basic level in order to then expand on it and have your knowledge be more and more concrete. And these textbooks did a fantastic job at teaching people what dialectics is, what are the basic principles of dialectics, what's the Marxist theory of history, what's the Marxist conception of what socialism as a negation of capitalism is. They did a really good job at that. And, and, and that reflects itself in the fact that a lot of the professionals that trained with those books, even if they weren't specialists in philosophy or anything like that, they retain the knowledge. Um, and so I... Now we have a situation where I think in the West, it's becoming a little bit okay to talk about the Marxism of the Soviet Union. Again, the most famous Marxist journal that comes out of uh, um, the UK, Capital and Class. In their recent issue, they had a, an article about Soviet Marxism that was quite good. Um, one of the recent books that I've reviewed, uh, Kang Kangal's uh, Frederick Engels and the Dialectics of Nature, it goes a lot into uh, Soviet Marxism, and that was published by Palgrave. So a, modern publications are engaging with it again. Uh, but a lot of the times in the engagement, you get the same dogma without realizing these are textbooks that you're giving to people who are not specialists and who are learning. And that then, after you let them read the Konstantinov manuals, then you can give them Ilyankov, which is harder. I mean, I tried to, uh, the philosopher Evald Ilyankov, I tried to read him before I read Hegel. I did not understand it. <laughs> and I had studied Marx at that point. I didn't. I had to go through like a year of reading intensively Hegel in order to then go back to Ilyenkov and understand what the hell he's talking about. Is this the Marxism you want to give to people? Or do you want to give them something that they understand and then can build upon? So I'm sorry, that was a longer rant than I expected. But uh, that's, been, that's been my research <laughs> for the last few months, interacting with these different uh, ways of uh, uh, explaining the basic principles of Marxism and specifically dialectics. That is good, though. I mean, I thought the Soviet manuals might be a dry topic, but you made it very interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you got to start people at a baseline level. And if you compare that to like what you're taught in the West, you know, in, in liberal countries, like, oh, there were it was George Washington. um and, you know, everything that happened in America at this time was because of him and a few other, you know, rich guys at the time. Um, you're not taught about 
different class forces and historical materialism and um and even being taught those things on a rudimentary level is is better than than being taught like this great man of history fallacy that that we learn in the west um uh i'm just thinking like in in the field of history like even getting a basic understanding of historical materialism like they teach world war one in the u.s usually at least i was taught like you know, there was there was someone who got assassinated and, and because countries had alliances, they all got pulled into a giant war. It's like, no, they were imperialist countries fighting over the colonies, you know, uh, imperialist countries run by their capitalists, you know, uh, as capitalism was developing at that time. Um, and even having a rudimentary understanding of that and, and the different class forces at play at that time and, you know, uh, uh, is, is way better than um than not so um and and i haven't dug into the manuals but uh that's that's just what what i thought after hearing you um hearing your awesome rant about it that's another good point that you paint where which is that if you compare it to american education (laughs) i mean come on sure if you compare it to like the most advanced like developments of marxism like I'm, i'm currently my research is currently focused on doing a comparative analysis of the three volumes of capital with both Hegel's Science of Logic and the Encyclopedia of Philosophical Science, uh, Sciences, which is a little bit of a dense topic, <laughs> right? It requires a lot of reading. Um, but if you compare what is being taught in the manuals to like a cursory, uh, to, to the sort of basic level uh, introductory classes and textbooks that you get in the US, it's a hell of a lot richer, right? You, you provide a good explanation, like World War One is taught like bad guy kills another guy, boom, World War. <laughs> that's you know um that's horrific right that's an abomination to to scholarship and uh and so is some of the things that are being done in the west if you criticize something and you cannot cite the book that's not scholarly behavior if you're going to criticize something cite the literature so that you can critique especially uh, this is something we get from the dialectical tradition to get beyond something you have to go through it you can't just skip yourself around it you can't ignore lenin or the soviet manuals drop two or three sentences critiquing it and then oh i i overcame soviet marxism or i defeated it no that's stupid you have to use the literature and if you genuinely disagree with it show me why you disagree with it. show me what they say and how you disagree with it um or why it's wrong right but they don't do that they don't do that and um it's very, it's very funny and hypocritical, as is most things from the empire. They're the ones that claim that the Marxism from over there is mechanistic and that the Marxism from over there is undialectical and blah, 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 blah. But they're the ones that embody all of those things that they point over there and say, oh, that's what they are. It's the same thing with the empire. The empire says they're undemocratic. Uh, there's no liberty over there. There's no freedom, blah, blah, blah. But that's what we are, right? And the little bit of that that they have, it's because of the pressures that we input on them. So, um yeah so yeah and i like the point that you make we always make this point of like understanding that there's a debate in other countries too you know just because stalin said something does not mean you know that he was that was the accepted opinion by everybody at the time um and there's there's a tendency in in the western left to do that so much and and people do it with china you know like you're a dangist or or you're you're a maoist you know people people call us dangoids or dangists all the time it's like, no, we like we like Mao and Deng, but we understand the, what they did was different. The period they were living in were different. Um, they 
and, and there was a debate constantly. Um, and and Deng was around uh, in the government or in the party debating um, and arguing for his ideas uh, when Mao uh, was in power. Um, and people never want to look at that. They just they just think it's, you know, this this one, you know, I read Stalin's dialectical and historical materialism is what everyone in the Soviet Union thought. Uh, like that was not not the case. The Soviet Union was publishing 60 percent of the books in the world out of every five books published in the world. Three of them came from the Soviet Union. And you're going to tell me that after reading the 38 fucking page dialectical and historical materialism, which is a one chapter of one book. Now, you know everything about Soviet Marxism and you can criticize it and dismiss it. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And it shows beyond just a lack of uh, theoretical honesty. It shows a little bit of chauvinism. It shows a little bit of chauvinism because to believe that the people in the East all think the same way, that's rooted in certain prejudices. Um, and, and those have to be challenged. I think philosophy starts, as, as Ramshi says, by know thyself, reflect on your own prejudices. And, and that's the process of critique of ideology, which a lot of them do a really good job explaining on how to do it, but none of them do it themselves for themselves. Interesting. Yeah. You got anything else to say on that topic? Um, on that topic, no, I, I just I, I wanted to uh, to to inform the listeners of, of some of the, the things that we have coming up. Uh, we're establishing ourselves as a as a formal press. We had printed uh, uh, last year our first journal of American Socialist Studies, which is, I don't know, in my opinion, pretty sweet. It's got really good scholarship on American socialism, which is an underexplored topic, not just for socialism in general, but for socialists in America. There is a long and rich tradition of socialism in the US that has been anti-racist, abolitionist, anti-sexist, um, and that has fought for the, the, the rights of workers. And when you strip a movement of its history as bourgeois education has done, uh, you're destroying it, right? The movements are based and communities are really made communities when they're able to collectively reflect on a past. And if we're unable to collectively reflect on a past that shows the socialist struggle in the US, we're unable to build an effective movement. So what we're trying to do with this journal is provide an interdisciplinary study of the traditions of struggle in our country. Um, and we did that with the first journal, which would it's gonna be made uh, available for free pretty soon. And we're hoping to do that with the second journal in a much more vast uh, manner. Um, but we're also getting on other printing projects and Again, if you want to support our efforts, please check out our Patreon. You can donate just $1 a month uh, if you can. If you can't, then, then please don't <laughs> just like share our videos and stuff, which is free. Uh, but it, it's a very important task because, look, capitalism is driving the world to shit. And uh, we are at the heart of the empire. We're at the heart of the country whose capitalists are guiding the, the, the train of history towards a wall, right, towards a precipice. And we need to do something about that. And in order to do something about that, we need to know that other people have done it in the past, that some of the things that we enjoy the most in the U.S., that workers enjoy the most, have been things that have been struggled for, not things that were given to us by the American capitalist. And that, uh, you know, that we had a working class that was internationalist at one point that understood that their interest was with the workers of the rest of the world. So we need to recapture that history. That's what we try to do in the journal. And I think it's utterly important for the struggle for socialism today in the U.S. and 
thereby in general for the rest of the world. If the US empire falls, socialism can peacefully, peacefully develop in the rest of the world. Absolutely. That was a great way to end it, I think. Um, beautiful little speech there. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more. Super pumped to put out um, some more uh, print journals. Uh, we're, we were really proud of the last one um, for all the reasons that Carlos said. Uh, so, yeah, excited to do more of those. Um, so thank you all for your support, especially with, you know, our TikTok being banned. If you're still sticking with us, uh, supporting us, we really appreciate it. And we are excited to put out more uh, educational and uh, sometimes entertaining content for you here on the Midwestern Marks YouTube. All right. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you later. Adios.